Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today I'm talking with Brenton. He shares his insights and challenges as a cannabis activist. He's concerned when the government expands their power to arrest people they don't like beyond their authorities. He talks about racism and prejudice inside the government and police. And together we explore the contradiction in local and climate policies that seems politically driven and arbitrary. Hi, Brenton. <laughs> so we already had one conversation and I want to talk more about this loss of liberty and government taking too much power and the dangerous of that. Just a quick politics lesson. In Canada, we have the rule of law. And what that means is that parliament, the legislature or local government councils Any decision, regulation or bylaw that they pass can be subject to review by the courts. And in Canada, that's to ensure that laws that are, say, enacted by Parliament aren't left on the books if they're deemed to be contrary to the charter or the Constitution. So it's not abnormal. In fact, it's very normal in Canada for regulations and laws to be challenged. By citizens because number one they're arbitrary number two they're what they call overbreadth which means that the group that passed it doesn't in fact have that power and so when you and I talked the other day about local government um, I was referring often to sort of the limit on their authority um, and so in Canada we're blessed that there is this judicial review of Of laws, especially ones that impact individuals, they're allowed to take it to court. So that's just a bit of background. So in Canada, we also have very clear defined powers. So I feel that it's important that people who enact regulations or laws be well aware of the limits of their authority, and that as a society, we don't become um, offended or start to label courts as activist courts. As people look to get review of these laws activist court what do you mean so on occasions in Canada we tend to want to think of our democracy as empowered by the majority but in Canada our democracy is truly about the protection of the minorities and of what we call our fundamental rights defined in the charter sometimes politicians will pass the A law or a regulation that is populist that everybody would or the majority would agree with and in that it gains a certain momentum but in fact that law or regulation might be a real bad one in particular because it would infringe on a fundamental right or be arbitrary or be beyond their power um, and so sometimes populist politicians, will point to the courts who would overturn such a law or regulation as being activists, as imposing their will on the majority, when in fact that's not a true reflection of how, of how we're set up in Canada, um, that in fact it is the courts who hold the final word 
in judgment on a law or regulation. So you say, this is interesting, because you're saying that the law should protect the minority, and we have the indigenous minority here, and it doesn't seem that the law really protect them so much. So no, how no, does it kind so of contradicting? Yeah, no, there's three elements at play where people get, it gets muddy a little bit. Number one, when I refer to law, I don't refer to the police. The role of the police and the federal police force in this tragedy is ongoing. It hasn't stopped yet. And it's based, we know, on racism, systemic racism within the police and prejudice towards a, a lot of different people. But I'm talking about the, a different type of, of rule of law. And we know that in Canada, okay. it has been the courts, not the politicians, who have enabled this forward momentum. So I challenge the notion that the courts have been, or the law, or the Justice Department has been the source of the problem. It has, in fact, been the solution to the problem, as the mm -hmm. courts have ruled again and again for over 30 years, starting with the Berger decision here in B.C., doing nothing but enabling and empowering nation-to-nation -nation negotiations. And in fact, we're at a point right now because of judicial precedents where we're seeing these things start to happen. So um, when I say rule of law, I don't mean the police. I acknowledge systemic racism is an ongoing problem, nor do I refer to the politicians who um, again and again, by acting arbitrarily and beyond their authority, create often more problems than they solve. And I congratulate the court and the system we have in Canada for most recently acknowledging the rights of the Sinaiics and the Colville tribe south of the border to move freely across the border. That's the court. That's not the politicians. Okay. Yeah. So and the justice... As, as, far, as far as I understand, like police doing what they've been told by the government and the government saying yes to pipeline. And then it's hurting minorities. So how do you, when you say that about minorities, that the law is for the right. minority, when you say that, you mean no. the, the court, the law right. that the court says, or the law that the government says? Right, right. This is important. The law that the government says is not the rule of law. The rule of law is the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. That's what's meant by the rule of law. It's not me saying, it's the system that we have. And, and just to try and bring some clarity to the discussion early on, it's not the law passed by parliament, nor is it the law enforced by the police. The rule of law is the rule of the judicial system in which is designed through the charter to protect the rights of the minorities. And fundamental to that right is the right of minorities, whether they're challenging a private injunction for a logging blockade or criminal charges because of blockading a pipeline route, they have the right to be heard in court and to challenge not only the circumstances around their arrest, but to also perhaps challenge the right of that law that the police were enforcing to exist. Um, and that's the rights of the minority being protected in that the citizens have the ultimate right to challenge into court the laws and regulations passed by parliament. So, for example, perhaps in the abortion debate at a certain time in Canada, 
the minority of people would have supported abortion or would have acted um, in a way that they wanted to access um, abortion. A minority, clearly, year after year in Canada. Um, but how they move their rights forward, fundamental and basic rights, in spite of the laws passed by Parliament and in spite of the enforcement of those laws by the police, they move it forward through the courts under the rule of law, which means that the precedents and the judgments going up to the Supreme Court are what define the limits of the law as passed by Parliament. So we now have in Canada, after years of, 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 of crazy oppression of minority rights, um, yeah, we have the right and freedom to access for health care and for abortions for women in Canada. And this is no small part due to the rule of law ruled on by the courts, not passed by Parliament. And I remember you also mentioned the differences between the rules that the government operates under and the rules the government creates. So say more about that. And what, and what are you scared about? What is the dangerous part sure. when the government has too much power? Sure. So let's assume that the government doesn't have too much power, but that the government has limited authority as defined in, in the rules that they operate under the Constitution. Fundamental in the language of the Constitution is that Canadian government is best that governs least. This is not uh, an ideology. This is fundamental language in our Constitution. So what worries me is the standard route to tyranny all across this world at every level of government to different degrees. It's not all defined by tyranny because it has a huge consequence. I define tyranny as a government, local, provincial, or federal, who operates outside of its authority and operates arbitrarily. And in some instances, are operate and make decisions that are not transparent. They're required to make decisions that are transparent. They're, they're required to pass laws and regulations only within their authority to do so. And those decisions are, are not meant to be arbitrary. So that's what I worry about. I worry about government that make decisions outside their authority um, based on false or misleading or incomplete um, information and that they do so in a way that's not accessible to citizens. It's done over dinner, before the meetings. And I've seen that here at the local government in Nelson time and time again. And so that's what worries me. My direct and ongoing participation in government is at the local government level. And I have seen again and again through multiple city councils in Nelson, how they tend to operate in a way that is less than transparent. It's not to say that everything they do is good or bad. It's just to challenge and ensure that these basic elements are maintained, that they're operating within their authority what is arbitrary? Um, arbitrary means, in this case, a decision that's based in the moment on a quick discussion, often emotional okay, based, okay. Um, not based mm -hmm. on data, facts, or, um, or proper debate. So I say arbitrarily, I don't like that person. My instincts and emotions are at play that make it arbitrary, not factual. Right. 
Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so my example will tend to maybe overlap a little bit, and I'll use a cannabis example. During the city process to establish bylaw regulations around cannabis, when federal legalization was happening, the city engaged in a survey, and they did this survey as a means of gauging public opinion towards making bylaws. As the process moves forward, the results of that survey which I think were designed for results anyways at the beginning, start to be cited and used in a way that is not really accurate as to what the citizens want, and it's an extension beyond their authority. The city decided to do, within their authority under land use zoning, prohibit cannabis businesses from multiple areas in Nelson, including commercial areas and the area where I am commercially zoned east of Josephine Street. They did this and specifically excluded my area of commercially zoned property in downtown Nelson and designated a cannabis prohibited zone for no reason. I understand why they did it and their reasons were wrong. They were arbitrary based on prejudice and based on some unknown negotiation that happened outside of the public eye, directly affecting me and the community of people who I'm involved with. If people look to see and define how prejudice and racism gets handed out, they need to understand those words about arbitrary and overbreadth that the government in often cases does not have the authority or the proper information to make the decisions. And in fact, are often making decisions based on prejudice. In the case of cannabis, it was quite clearly prejudice. I attended every meeting. I saw the process from the beginning right through to the end. And people, you can trust me, local government does not have your interests at heart. They have, yeah, they just don't, they're incapable of it unless they're held in check. And the current city council, and I'd say the city council previous to this one, were not held in check. They ran amok. And this is the consequence of when the process starts to not happen within the rules, which are there for a reason. Um, it starts to swerve and maneuver and it becomes unpredictable for people, some people who are making business and life decisions around their interpretation of the bylaws and regulations. And when they're swerving and they're making decisions that are not rational, but are based on prejudice, um, it's hard to get a grip. It's hard to lead a life almost. Um, and I openly would say that the previous council around the cannabis bylaws uh, made their decisions based on, on racism and on prejudice. Racism about cannabis? Uh, for sure. Racism centered around cannabis exists on many different levels. Explain. Yeah, in Canada, they liked to call it the black market. Now, people who are sophisticated thinkers or enlightened know to call it the illicit market. So it's now the illicit cannabis market, which in itself is a progress, but still sort of eh. um, um, Whereas it's emerged now um, 
gone are the days when you called it the black market for marijuana. Both black and marijuana are racist terms. Mm. So do you refer the racism to the terms or to the people using it? The enforcement of cannabis laws and regulations becomes racist in the following scenario. There are two groups of people sitting on a beach in Vancouver. One group is black or from Somalia. The other group is from West Vancouver. One group has beers and smokes a joint. The other group has beers and smoke a joint. I can tell you from antidotal information that I have heard and can appreciate in my own experience, two police officers pulling up into the parking lot will almost 100% of the time gravitate towards the Somali people, right? Or the black people who dare to smoke a joint on our beach. That is what I talk about systemic racism in the police and their enforcement of cannabis. Yes, absolutely. The prejudice is not only racism, it's also prejudice, right? So the enforcement of that. of the of- Absolutely. The downtown east to draw it into Aboriginal, we know that cannabis is a huge mitigating factor and relief for people who suffer chronic health conditions and are dependent on opiates, including in Vancouver on the downtown east side, which is a heavy Aboriginal, heavy, heavy Aboriginal population. The enforcement of cannabis regulations in that zone and in that area was obviously meant to thin wedge out other problems and is always done with racism and prejudice. So when we talk about cannabis, the projection of racism is historical and it's ongoing. When we talk about prejudice and we take it away simply from race, And we start to understand that the police have a prejudice also towards cannabis. So in my scenario, there's two people from West Vancouver sitting on the beach with a beer. And there are two people from West Vancouver sitting, smoking a joint. The police pull up. Now it's not necessarily about race. It's about prejudice. And 90% of the time, they're going to head towards an enforcement model on the people smoking cannabis, not the people drinking a beer. This is the further expression of prejudice. Right. And why cannabis for you? What is your connection with it? Do you yeah. deal with the health condition? Well, you know, it's important to acknowledge that the advancement of cannabis legalization in Canada has been through its health applications and the courts for many years siding with cannabis, not only as being a medicine, but also with it being not harmful. Um, so my, in that process, many heroes have gone to jail and many heroes with bad chronic medical conditions have put themselves at the forefront of the debate, revealing their medical conditions to the public and to the authorities in this movement towards legalization. I myself hold firm on that. My medical conditions and my medical reasons for using any therapeutic drug um, or plant-based medicine is nobody's business but my own. And if we've moved to a society where I have to convince people that I'm sick enough, that I could use a harmful plant in my life, then I don't do that at the citizen level. My particular knowledge around cannabis and how government regulations work 
come from law and come from being involved with the not only uh, the political process around cannabis, but also the court process. I, like many others in British Columbia, have a deep knowledge and background of the law as it relates to cannabis and the process towards legalization. And we for certain know how it transpired in the political and, and in that legislative manner. So I've been involved with cannabis. I've seen its successes and more importantly, as many, many failures and feel with that knowledge that I can safely tell you that many of the regulations that we are being put under enforcement relating to cannabis, local government, provincial and federal are clearly based on racism, prejudice, and a negotiation and compromise with people who hold law and order above everything else. So when I ask you about your personal connection with cannabis and you were reluctant to reply, is it because it can put you in danger in some way? I'll tell you why I ask that. I ask that because uh, it feels more interesting and easy to connect with someone that you know their story and not hearing just the dry facts. No, so for many years I've lived under fear of arrest, not irrational fear, for ongoing to this day with what's happening with the enforcement unit called the Community Safety Unit from the province of BC, they're pot police. People each and every day are being arrested. So to bring up my personal side, which is the core of your question, um, it's a big reveal. Yeah, and in this context um, and with you, I feel comfortable in talking about it, even on the record. And this would be the first time because I've often held it as being my personal business, right? So um, yes, many years as a cannabis farmer ended with my arrest and with my imprisonment on cannabis. So through that process, um, through the justice process and through the, the detention process and through serving my time and through parole and through trying to get a pardon or a record suspension over the course of many, many years, um, I have been, I'll just say it, I've been threatened by gangs. I've been threatened by motorcycle gangs. I've been threatened and recruited, attempted recruitment by race-based gangs. I've had crazy experiences with the police where my personal safety has been at risk. Um, I've been, yeah, the list goes on. So I look to your audience and to anybody who might consider this, including the police who at their core understand that this is not a personal vendetta or an item against them at all. In fact, there are many great cops, many great correctional officers and court officers um, but to relate my personal experiences, I have seen the bad side of the police. I have seen the bad side of gangs here in Nelson, as well as other places. And it does exist for sure. My threat to my personal safety and to the consequences that I might suffer in my life from my activist stance are much more relaxed now than they have been in the past as I've moved through my record suspension process and my cannabis convictions uh, are no longer on my record. But when you're an activist, whether- and The law has changed, so now cannabis is legal, right? 
Right. So cannabis is now legal, but there remain many, many layers of regulations and laws that continue and in fact have increased the criminal consequences for people who deal not only in medical cannabis, but with their personal supply of cannabis. For example, here in Nelson, we have a bylaw that um, says that I can't plant my cannabis plant, my one of four, which is an arbitrary number. We're allowed four hot plants. Who came up with that? Um, I'm just going to move my web camera. No worries. Oh, ah. look at that. Can you see my plant? I'm breaking yeah. the law right now. I That's illegal. Illegal. And it doesn't, it seems ridiculous for some people. They're like, oh, well, what are you worried about? Nobody will do anything. But they're not activists. They don't understand that what the police often work with is, or what enforcement in general works with is a pretense. Is, is not the, the is reality. A pretense? a pretense. Guess what, Brenton? Your plant is visible from the road. That's illegal. And what is the consequence what is motivating it then? Is it a real concern over my visible pot plant or is it my activism? How do you mm. figure that out? When you're in what the is the police looking for? What is the goal of the police? Right. The goal of the police. Yeah. The goal of the, the police, both federally and here in British Columbia, was to break down the pre-existing um, system for cannabis, medical cannabis. That would include suppliers who they didn't agree with or people like I would say Jody Emery, who operates in Vancouver. Jody Emery has put her freedom. These are women. I'm going to point out that within the cannabis activist community, it is driven by women with huge credibility. Women who are not only smart and efficient, but truthful and honest. And they are being set up to, to be hurt, destroyed. And why? Because the government didn't want them in their system. It's the expression of prejudice and racism. The whys within that, we can get into in detail to explore. But fundamental is the prejudice. And I would encourage anybody who's looking to try and further understand cannabis legalization and activism, look up Jody Emery and become and really follow what Jody is doing. So why the police do it? They don't like us. They think we're, there's a negotiation and that negotiation is, is uses people as, as, yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. They just don't like us. And when government just doesn't like something, does that give them the authority to put us in jail? I say no. We work arbitrary in a way. Arbitrary, yeah, complete arbitrary. There is a specific regulation in the BC Cannabis Act that does a lot of things to prohibit the easy, easy to understand and reasonable cannabis use. I've been involved in trying to change those provincial regulations and can tell you after years of effort um, that how these progressive and forward-looking um, initiatives die and get stopped in their tracks is when they hit the racism and prejudice within the government. And they just say, no, we don't want that, whether it's at a committee level or over a state dinner. And I guarantee you that the conversation for many years in Canada was based on racism and prejudice. 
where government officials made deals with law and order people that went something like this. I know you don't want those people there. We don't want those people there. So let's do everything we can to get rid of those people. And if those people come towards us, guess what? We'll throw them in jail. And if the courts say we can't throw them in jail, well, we'll seize their property. And if the courts say we can't seize their property, we'll just harass them. There are places in Toronto where the enforcement of the cannabis regulations are quite clearly based on racism. Again and again. It's awful. It's horrible. And, and cannabis people have um, a repertoire of lawyers who again and again win court rulings and again and again the government tries to pass a regulation or a law that's unreasonable. And again and again it's struck down. And it just goes back and forth. A lawyer named John Conroy made a point at the Senate hearings in the legalization of cannabis. This was the following point. He said he understands that people have concerns about the associated or potential harms of cannabis. He doesn't agree with it, but he dared to ask the question that when is there going to be a study of the harms, direct harms that come from putting teenagers in jail for smoking a joint? Those still exist on the books. If you're an 18 year old and you have a 17 year old partner, boyfriend or girlfriend, and you light your legal joint at 18 and you pass it to them and they're 17, you are breaking the law. That might not matter to people from West Vancouver or uphill Nelson, but trust me, it matters because that law does get enforced. And it's, it's an arbitrary law based on racism and prejudice and it's, in, and it's being enforced in, in an arbitrary way that suits their end. So the harms okay. of prison, yeah. Thank you so much for explaining those important nuances about racism and prejudice in the system. And I wonder if we can talk right now about if you can connect me the dots between what you said right now and the climate initiative you're seeing as problematic act of overpower that the government of Nelson is doing. Here in Nelson, as it relates to climate, the local government um, councillors and people who are discussing this as it involves local government in the city of Nelson, are discussing it in a way that don't appreciate the limits on the power of local government. Um, so politicians in a campaign, for example, will talk about a train. Wouldn't a train be great? But in Canada, local government has no authority at all to do anything about trains. So I'm not saying that local government here in Nelson is going beyond their authority. I'm saying that oh, okay. they're, they're not because they can't. And I find it frustrating that the conversation keeps going in circles, assuming that they can do these things. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it okay. be great if we moved the conversation forward and politicians stood forward and said, you know what, I would like to work with getting a train here to Nelson, but how do I do that? Well, I can't do it because I don't have local government authority, but I can work towards a resolution that might the council could agree on that might say, we, the city of Nelson, ask the federal government, who's in charge of railroads, 
to consider this. And that's it. Um, so so a, give me a few examples of the conversations that's happening that they sure. actually cannot do, that is not in their power. What is the conversation? Like train? What else? Tra- trains would be one for sure. Closing down roadways. The conversation that closing roads in Nelson would be a good idea. Of course, city government has no authority to close roads. <laughs> they don't get to close roads. Ro- so there are examples here in Nelson where there initiatives from council within their authority that are great. Active transportation, very positive. The work that's being done to improve the sidewalks for walkers and the roadways for bikers are clearly within city authority and they're doing a good and decent job on that. But then there's a bigger conversation around climate that assumes local government has certain authority to act. And they don't. So I see that conversation as being a distraction from what the city could actually do. So I want, I want details to understand sure. exactly. So, you know, sure. like to really okay. understand that. So the city of Nelson, along with Fortis and the province, worked to establish electrical vehicle charging stations, both at the Prestige Hotel in Railtown and at the Nelson and District Community Complex. At no point has there been any data provided to citizens that show the use of these electric charging stations. I would contend, in my view, in my experience, they are not being used at all. That the city of Nelson worked to establish an electrical vehicle charging stations um, because they thought it was a great idea and would look good. And the gap is that, in fact, they're not being used. Why is the city involved in electrical vehicle charging stations at all? If there was a need, a private business would be doing it, hopefully. Um, I would look at the solar garden that was established out at Nelson Hydro's dam site as being an example that is still held up to this day by the city in certain conversations as a success. I would say that the Nelson Community Solar Garden is a failure and that if people were to look at it in detail, they would see how exactly unsuitable solar power is for this area, especially solar power that is built right next to our own hydroelectric facility. So why, how? And the problem for me is not necessarily, let's assume the how and the whys are great. It's in the misrepresentation of the results or the lack of disclosure of the results. Um, Yeah, certainly. Results, you mean the data? Yeah, or not only the raw data, but the conversation around the interpretation of the data that goes beyond just saying, Nelson Solar Garden is a great success. It's viewed, right? It's just... You know, when in fact, an analysis of it shows that it's, it's not effective at all and, and outside of its role in pictures and photographs, it is very little use on the grid, especially next to a hydroelectric dam. Yeah. Okay, now I understand. You're saying two things. One, that there are conversation in the local government that are about climate initiatives that confuses the public on what local government can really do 
like the train. And there is another kind of conversations that are not open and honest about the results of the initiatives that already been done, like with the example of the solar garden, right? Yes, yes. What have you tried to express your perspective on the, the city council and how did it go? I would go into the meeting trying to be specific in my details. And what I would start with would be under what authority, legal authority was this passed? And I would look to cite and reference the community charter, which is the law that manages local governments in the cities in British Columbia. Um, so I would try and be very specific. And it's certainly right now, there are some examples that are happening right now. So I would appear before a meeting at council, having done research and trying to be well prepared. If I was denied access to information or the information wasn't available, I would cite that as being a problem. Number one, I was denied access to the information. If I was provided information, sure. What you're describing sounds like a scenario of what might happen and not what did happen, right? Um, or it's assumption. Yes. What? This is a scenario of what can happen. Yeah. So not... A so if it's okay with you, we can leave the scenarios for now and move to a different topic. I would like to hear your perspective about climate change. What is your opinion? What do you think about climate change? What is the problem with it? Uh, is there a problem? And maybe even what is the first time you realized that there is climate change? Sure. So like many people in Canada who is my age, I'm 53 years old, um, is it was pollution before climate change. So the impact from human greenhouse gas and fossil fuels and consumption that I experienced initially was through pollution. It hadn't yet been called climate change. And pollution was not only smog pollution in the city that I grew up, um, which would affect your breathing and health quite obviously. It was also acid rain and the acidification of the lakes um, in an area of Ontario where I love to go on canoe trips. So my early experiences with climate change were centered on pollution, um, the destruction of lakes and of habitat in the forests and in the north in Canada. So that's how I first became aware of it. Now we use climate change as an umbrella that also rightly includes pollution. So that was my introduction. My main concern around climate change um, right now is in biodiversity and in the effect that, that it has the plants and the animal systems that we rely on. Here in Nelson, we look, the, the policies and the programs that are defined by Nelson Next, which is the carbon way forward that the city has adopted um, in general. It, there's a lot in, in this document that, um, that it will go nowhere because, as I've said, it, it, the government doesn't have the authority for what they might be proposing. But in general, I agree with it. And it does focus on two main things is the adaptation and the mitigation of the consequences of climate change. Here in Nelson, we have to adapt to warming trends and big weather events. And that's fine. We can do that. But we also have to mitigate, which is manage the effect um, climate change is going to have on our water systems, 
and also through wildfire and the ecosystems that we rely on around Nelson and in Nelson. So my main concern would be that Nelson continues along its path to adapt so that we can continue to survive and thrive through climate change, but also that we prepare and do what we can to mitigate these effects, whether it's up in the forest surrounding Nelson or as we see in our own water supply and water security. So yeah, that's that's where I am. I, I yeah, that's where where I come from with it at this point. I'm actively engaged in expanding my knowledge and participating in some in a grassroots examination of some of these concerns. And I am tapping into this great experience and knowledge that we have here in Nelson and in the area, bringing my perspective around local government and government into the conversation at certain points, but de definitely listening. Um, I'm familiar with Nelson Next. I've read it several times, both for the campaign and in this other climate work that I'm involved with. And I can point to many what they call aspirations in this document um, that I'm amazed made it into it because they might exist for language or feel good, but as a policy, it, yeah, arbitrary and overbreadth and, and not realistic. So, yeah, I tend to want to, I'm an editor by nature. I want to bring things down and into focus. We don't need that sentence. We don't need this sentence. And Politicians tend to want to add sentence after sentence. And, and so that's a bit of the divergence between me and, and maybe a typical politician. Yeah. So, um, for example, I do not agree with Nelson Next when they suggest that they have a free parking pass for electrical vehicles. That's mm -hmm. awful. Not, not a million years would I agree to that. Um, nor do I agree. Why not? Yeah. So, yeah. The, yeah. And there's a series of, uh, of ones, for example, that, that are in here. Develop a pilot program offering free transit. If air quality is above six on the provincial air quality health index, like, no, what, what is that even? Going on to say, establish an all-electric downtown event to encourage EV adoption. No. Pedestrian safety by reducing the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour citywide. This is in their path forward around climate change. They offered no information or data to suggest that a reduction to 30 kilometers an hour for was of any use to anybody. I 100% disagree with that and believe that council is uses climate change to bring in a bunch of fluff and things that has no role in any of it. Accelerate the adoption of the step code beyond the provincial requirements. So here we have the city. The step code is the building code as it relates to fundamental changes in the building code to lessen the impact of buildings and greenhouse gas emissions. So here we have city council saying that the city, and I will point out again that four of the councillors do not live in Nelson, that the city and city councillors are saying that we need to move beyond the provincial requirements. I'm going to say no, that we don't, that Nelson needs to remain affordable 
that Nelson needs to not layer over layer of items that don't have any real, yeah, that are not within their authority to do. Um, heat pumps. This is another example of what the city of Nelson is embracing under climate change. Heat pumps are an ineffective, expensive, and in the case of Nelson, where we have our own hydroelectric facility, um, yeah, I'll just say it, useless. A micro-grant program that supports residents to develop neighborhood-level climate solutions. Where are we going to get the money for that? Not sure. There's a lot in here that is positive. Working with local institutions, collaboration with nonprofits, resolutions towards the provincial and the federal government, the e-bike program. So I can look to a whole lot of good things in here, but I certainly also feel that this document could have been about 15 pages less <laughs> to be effective. Why less pages is more effective? Because there's more focus? Yeah, less words, less statements of intention that are not realistic given the community charter's limit on their authority. Um, Why do you don't like that? It's to encourage um, more electric cars. So this is the contradiction that we get from this current city council where it appears free parking for EV vehicles uh, within the, the climate adaptation policy, but they don't pass on it. They, they don't pass such a resolution or a bylaw because when it gets right down to it, it's not popular. Um, and also the city, this is a the biggest contradiction that we have between the city, what they say and what they can do is that it, the parking in Nelson brings in between $900,000 and $1 million a year in revenue. That revenue, given the bylaws of the city of Nelson, goes immediately to its road improvement budget. So every quarter that somebody puts in to the meter goes towards funding improvements, not only in the sidewalks for pedestrians, but the roadways for bikes. A second major source of revenue for local governments in British Columbia is what's called the fuel grant. The fuel tax is collected at the pump by the federal government. A large portion of that tax is distributed back to the provinces who then redistribute it to local governments and cities. So, a lot of what we have for funding in Nelson comes from a tax on gas. So if we tax less, we have less money. A lot of what we have here in revenue in Nelson is from our parking meter revenue. If we have less parking meter revenue, we have less money. We have a contradiction, increasing responsibilities and declining revenue. And at some point, the conversation has to reconcile that. And I have not heard that conversation from this council at all. Yeah, I, I don't think it fits into the pre some of the councillors' agendas, so they're unwilling to have it because they might find it embarrassing or they might find that their conclusions <laughs> are not supported. Um, given that contradiction, the reliance on fuel and the reliance on parking and our roadways to fund. The cities have very little few ways to raise revenue and parking meters is, is one of the biggest ones. Yeah. 
And right now, the uh, electric cars are very expensive, more than a regular car. An e-bike is more expensive than my car. You know, it, it's, it's... E-bike is more expensive than your car. Oh, yeah. I hope, and this is the lack of perspective that comes when the conversation be- becomes very narrow and starts to go back in on itself, especially among politicians and, and bureaucrats, where they assume... That the middle class is normal, that the middle class is most people, that most people make as a household 120 to 180,000 dollars a year. Therefore, everything fits into that. 6,000 dollars for an e-bike, no problem, right? 4,000 dollars for a new kitchen cabinets, no problem. Right? We can get the e-bike and the kitchen cabinets, right? It, you know it, it's, it's a lack of perspective on affordability, and without these conversations being challenged or hearing from a broad base of people, they become very narrowly focused where we can feel good about the fact that we're helping the environment as a city because we're helping people purchase $4,000 e-bikes. I'm not to say that that program is not a good program and it has a good structure in Nelson, um, but it's not the solution to climate change, certainly not the solution to affordability. So how do you think this affordability and climate mitigation contradiction can be resolved? Less car is less pollution, but also less revenue for the city. Right. I would say that the city, in conversation with the province, has an impact. The city alone lacks the authority and finds itself in this budget contradiction. So what the city can do is provide information and lobby and through resolutions or through the city's involvement in lobby groups towards the province, um, the idea and the situations that we're talking about that lie within their authority, because the province then also has the obligation to fund it, right? So the province wants to encourage electric vehicle use by permitting the cities to give them free parking. One of two things happen. The city reduces its services. One of three things. The city reduces its services to make up that budget shortfall. The city goes into deficit or it draws on reserves, which is bad, or the province funds it. So this is where that conversation needs to be. And the province is not necessarily into this conversation. Um, another big contradiction I would like to point out between funding and the source of the funding is Is gambling and alcohol. The gambling and alcohol grant system that's set up by the province that awards money to community groups and local governments for initiatives in itself is great. A new roof gets put on a community hall. Um, a new um, culvert gets put in so that turtles and frogs can move between wetlands on either side of a road. All very important. But this money comes potentially from the lottery, gaming and alcohol grants, gambling and poison. So the contradiction is there. The more we drink, the more we gamble, the more we absorb the costs associated with those which are awful and, and through the roof, the more money the province gets. And then that money gets redistributed for community 
perhaps some of that money even into rehabilitation programs for alcoholics. I don't know, but the funding model it needs to be examined, right, and challenged for these basic things to happen. And those basic things, and the funding model is, is the province, clearly is the province. So the city doesn't have the money to do it. We can't afford it. Yeah. That's, that's very important, yeah. yeah. That's very important. Thank you for, for saying that. Good. Um, yeah. Nelson has a lot of opportunities for people to contribute. And so if I would ask one thing, Yael, this is what I would ask. And it's where I get earnest, and that might be apparent, is that people go into the conversations having done an equal amount of research into what they're proposing, not just climate change in itself, but that they do the research into local government and into the province and understand how that system works. And then what they can do is they can take this very important concerns they have but make it in a way that would see it happen rather than suggest things that are going to not go anywhere because the authority doesn't exist. So I would hope that people go into the climate conversation with knowledge, not only of climate, but also of basic government functions and their rights in Canada. Yeah. Where do you uh, suggest to get this knowledge? The knowledge is now, I believe, more available than ever because the knowledge doesn't require academics. It doesn't involve study. Um, it involves the knowing how to access it. And more now than ever with the internet uh, can we do that level of transparency. So the city, for example, there is a um, city council meeting on Tuesday. They often happen on Tuesday. That agenda is released on Fridays. So if people are interested in city government, they can go to the city website and register themselves and they would get the emails that have the agenda of the next meeting, city council meeting, and all of the information. At the provincial level, if they have a, a, a something specific that they're looking for, um, it's all online. Um, the federal government as well, very transparent in, in how they provide information and how functional it is online. Um, is there any information about the process of the decision making in the government? Because going to the meeting, it's a, it's a lot of time investment. Right. Um, so the process, again, is very clear. Um, I would just say that. And if we as citizens want things to work, We have to take some responsibility. We have to find that little bit of time in our day to challenge our own assumptions, to seek out information that replaces our emotional response. The emotion takes us to action. The action that we require is knowledge. The next step is conversation and then a resolution towards how to make it happen. So those are the steps, passion and emotion, knowledge, conversation and result. That happens at government and it happens in our everyday life, in our negotiation with our children, as an example. So I would challenge anybody who projects onto the other person that you have to give me this information. I would say, no, if you are concerned truly about it and being effective, And also, which we all are, 
balancing social justice, right? That is not that hard to find out. That the city website is very clear and transparent. And if you have issues that concern you at the local government level, I encourage you to, to link onto, this, onto their website that sends you the updates and the agenda of the meetings that are happening. Or go onto their calendar and look at them yourselves. Because you might find that there is an item on the agenda that you're very concerned about or very excited about. Tuesday's agenda next week, farmer's market, disc golf, um, the parks. Um, there's a few other great and exciting things on the agenda. So I don't have to read the agenda. I don't have to understand it through and through, but I have to at the very least have looked for it. And anything else is circle thinking. And, and this is, doesn't interest me so much. So take initiative. That's a really good call to action. Yeah. 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 And it's one thing I've learned dealing with and contributing to local government. I've made presentations to Victoria, to the city of Vancouver, to other cities across Canada. It's regrettable, but three points and a call to action at the end. And then hopefully they've heard you. <laughs> <laughs> And more than ever, Yael, is now, of course, city council meetings, um, although I look forward to when they can be back in person meetings. That's very important for me. Um, right now, they're on video. And the link from the city website on their calendar to watch the proceedings at council meetings, very simple. Your ability to participate in that is often to read the agenda, which is released on a Friday, get your response together um, and how what you would like to put forward hopefully on the Friday, um, so that city staff has an opportunity to add it in to the material. City staff here in Nelson are good in that I've gotten my opinion to them on the Monday before the Tuesday meeting, and they still managed to include it. Um, yes. Thank you. Those are really good tips. Before we wrap up, I wonder if you have any tips for people to find out if they are racist, if they don't notice that they hurt others from their old habit, something that they're so used to do. Here's how I would say to find out you are racist. Let me relate a personal experience to you, one that has potential consequences. Approached by a gang member who looks at you in a position of power over you, and stands over you, and you are scared. You won't admit that you're scared, but you are scared. Maybe you're even a police officer, and this is in the shower after your shift, right? Maybe you're a young man in the gym. Maybe you're someone who's in prison, and this man with power over you stands over you and reveals his symbol of authority in a tattoo, let's say, and says something like this, Hey, brother, how's it going? You're being asked clearly to endorse and participate in a racist gang. Then if you say anything less than you are either in fear, which is what the racist gangs want, or you are in an adrenaline state where your survival, I'm in, okay, yes, brother. Or 
You have the strength of your conviction and the strength of your experiences to, in the face of it, even being a police officer or a gang member, say, no, thank you, sir. I'm not interested. And be humble and walk away. If you're humble and walk away, you are not a racist. If you have put your fists up, even once, even if at some point you have to cave in because it's too much, you are not a racist. And if you, have, if you feel you are a racist, you're not condemned to that forever. Find your way out of it. Find your way home. We're not condemned by our actions of the past. And I, anybody, we have to understand power over and the threats and, and, and the subtleties involved in racist recruitment, whether it's towards, whether it's, you know, towards a white-based race group, whether it's towards the Brothers Keeper, uh, East South Asian racism, whether it doesn't matter to me. You have to challenge it and you have to stand up or you have to move away in a way that's humble. And so I'm not going to say how people can decide they are a racist. I'm going to challenge people to find out how they are not a racist. How to step out of it, how to find a way out. We're not, it's not in us. It's imposed on us. You understand? It's imposed on us. Often for people's basic security, because there's somebody with a power over them, right? A gang member, a police officer. Yeah, racism is, is horrible. And it goes in all directions, all around yeah. us, swirling. And it's not easy. And I identify with young men and with men in this regard. Women are challenged in ways that I can hear about and I can't fully understand. But men are under threat again and again around the subtleties of racism and gang membership. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, people that live in an echo chamber, and this is something that I'm trying to break right now, right? Like talking with more people. But it's in the echo chamber. Many times I think you don't know that you might be doing something that might hurt other people because you yeah. do it for so Or, many yeah. years and you never thought about it. Never, nobody stood up and said, hey, this is hurting me because it's scary to say that. Sure. Or people get scared that it's scared to think it. So this is another thing. If you think a racist thought, it does not make you a racist. Clinging on to that thought or building in that thought makes you a racist. People are answering also to their chemical and their hormones with men, testosterone and adrenaline. So how do they sustain such an irrational or wrong position? They do it in this imbalance in almost a chemical or mental imbalance, right? testosterone, adrenaline, fear, some cases, and power. It's a muddy mix that we don't always have direct control over, which is why I ask that people don't identify as racism, as racist, but rather try and identify to find a way out of it. Uh Certainly, what just happened in London, Ontario, right, with a family of five being run over. I lived in London for many years. I can guarantee you that London is a hotbed, not only of Canada's military industrial complex and that that's where our weapons and tanks are built, 
It's a hotbed of enlightenment. It has university campuses, many things. It is a hotbed of racism, of gangsters, of motorcycle gangs. That It's hard to comprehend here in British Columbia, but it does also exist here. So don't fiddle around the edges. Find your way out if you're feeling prejudice or racism. But if you're in the midst of it, I wish you the best of luck finding your way out of it because it often comes with a beating. And unless you've been beaten, it's hard to really understand how some people give in or how some people lose not only their power, but their identity, how they surrender it into the racist cause. They literally have it beat, beaten. And it's not an exaggeration. It's happening right this moment in many places. This hate and racism is imposed on us. Would you say the social media is making racism even worse? Sure, we, we look for the easy symbols, you know, and it's an important part of the discussion. You know, I wouldn't diminish it, right? But it, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily answer the question for individuals as they might be confronted with it in their real life. It might provide them an avenue for their emotional to be like, oh, right? But it's very rarely factual. And oftentimes in itself represents a mob mentality or a surrender, if you will. And this is where the justice system plays its role. It's supposed to deal with the facts, right? And oftentimes by the time you get right down in there, you realize that even your worst boogeyman isn't your worst boogeyman, right? Sometimes it is for sure, right? And we see the horror from Black Lives Matters, from a lot of the what has happened in the United States over the last five years where rally and counter rallies happen and these crazy expressions of extremism happen and then perhaps in a consequence and then in the courts people are so tearfully i can't believe i did that why did i do that i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that that wasn't me you know it, what causes this it, it's a, it's it has reasons so we just can't let's not dismiss each other all out of hand right especially people who are, yeah, don't make sense to you because they might be talking as a racist, but try and have some compassion and understanding. I mean, yeah, because they'll beat you in hate. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're indoctrinated. Yeah. In hate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, yeah, yeah, I, the reflection, it comes down um, to violence, racism and, um, membership in gangs, which are often race-based or have, especially here in British Columbia, or have the expression um, of race when it's really about power and money, but it's still race is in there, um, comes with a consequence. And yeah, like I said before, I, unless you've really been, had the shit kicked out of you, you, you might not be able to fully relate. So, Brenton, it's hard to relate for me because it, it's really unfamiliar territory for me. And, and I feel like I'm living in a paradise. And you're talking about things that's happening here in BC, here in Nelson, that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And I wonder, how do you know so much about this? I grew up in an area in Toronto. That area, Yael, is called Flemington Park. F-L-E-M-I-N-G-D-O-N Park. It is without a doubt one of the craziest, most violent places in this country. 
riddled with gangs, riddled with violence, from when I grew up, before I grew up, and to this day. The violence is perpetuated not by the majority, often by the minority. The violence is perpetuated often by individuals within that group who have the tendency towards violence that goes beyond even other members of the group. That sense of protection and reward that comes from belonging in a gang, whether it's a gang on a block or a gang in a province, is mm -hmm. quite often based on race-based membership, whether you're Jamaican, Somali, South Asian, Afghani, Greek, Italian. Yeah. They're all race. They're all based on racism. To assume gotcha. that racism okay. is a white person problem is to dismiss the horrible experience that many thousands of white people have experienced both on themselves as they might resist membership or as a consequence of their race. I mean, here in Canada for certain, yeah. yeah. And in jail and in prisons, it's much more stark. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. With the Aboriginal um, community within prisons being very strong, having to be very strong in the face of racism and institutional racism within the prison system. But as I'm walking down a hallway, Somebody comes behind me and hits me. I don't even see who they are. Are they native? I don't know. Is he from India? I don't know. Is he Somali? I don't know. Afghani? I don't know. I don't care. Racism is not about white reconciliation towards Aboriginal people in the least part of it, but not all of it. Yeah. This is what truth and reconciliation yell brings forward, right? It's not truth and retribution or truth and, and then it's truth and reconciliation. And what we saw from South Africa is that the real empowerment that comes from truth and reconciliation is that people can admit, put forward in public display, not only the grief and harm that they've experienced, but also the grief and harm that they've perpetuated. So the perpetrator reconciles themselves with the victim with no retribution. In fact, truth and reconciliation is built on the foundation of forgiveness and that there is, in fact, not a consequence to the reveal, not only to the reveal for that individual to find forgiveness, but the reveal as to where the bodies are, are laid, right? A, a reveal to clarity to situations that might have happened within South Africa that until that point had been uh, subjected to propaganda or dismissed, right? So that's what's meant by it. It's not retribution or, or it's not any of these things. It's truth and reconciliation. And I believe the Aboriginal community empowered by the courts in Canada are already way ahead of us there, not only culturally, instinctually for them, but also in the fact that um, they're fully prepared for us to catch up. Um, and what we have to do is start just admitting things. Right. But we have to admit things in a way that don't make the people admitting it victims of the mob. Otherwise, they, they just it won't happen. We exist just almost there. We exist trapped in an early step in our reconciliation of grief. We are not reaching that seventh step, which is acceptance and transcendence. Right. Which is the value that truth and reconciliation hold out for us. These other conversations are important because they lead us towards that. But. The um, acceptance of truth and reconciliation within any other format is, is just partway there, right? You know, yeah. 
I feel resolved to that in my personal life, my experiences within my Aboriginal friends and my experiences in the North are balanced and well-considered for sure. So part of the truth and reconciliation process, part of the truth telling is not just victims saying what happened to them, it's the prosecutor saying what they've done. Are they not going to be punished for that? Like they're actually going to step up and say, yes, I did that and that? Correct. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly how the process in South Africa worked out, but some of the highlights that stood out for me is when people, whether they've been already persecuted and done their time for crimes, perhaps, but also people within government or the military or the police have an opportunity to, in openness, without consequence, yes, admit to their participation. I'm not sure of the details in that process. Maybe there are consequences or maybe there were, but they're not the consequence of the mob. Um, it's not the, the consequence of having to confess to something as the flames leap at your feet or as the, as the yeah, gallows no. get prepared, right? It, it's something that allows people to continue to live. I'm just thinking the fear to confess is something that might slow the process down. Sure, sure. And, and so, and, and that it has to happen also with the procedure that calms the mob, right? The cries of genocide, right? I understand, right? But the cries of genocide and, uh, are important to be heard, but they don't necessarily define each and every experience. It's important in this country that we also understand that each individual is alive and has a, a right to life. And in doing so, we need to subdue the mob <laughs> constantly. Mm -hmm.